Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Again, Blockhead listeners, welcome to a new edition of the podcast. Today's guest, Khalid Birdsong of Fried Chicken and Sushi. Fried Chicken and Sushi, which can be found on FriedChickenAndSushi.com and also at GoComics.com. Be sure to head on over to GoComics after listening to today's episode. If you haven't subscribed to it already, make sure you do because it's a terrific comic strip and it's a really unique story, I think, as well. So uh, uh, I think you'll enjoy it if you're not familiar with it. And certainly after listening to Khalid today, I'm, I'm sure you'll want to. Khalid also does another wonderful comic strip called The Honey Buns about some anthropomorphic rabbits that live in Silicon Valley. And they are on uh, Instagram and on Facebook. So follow Khalid on Instagram, Khalid Birdsong, at Khalid Birdsong on Instagram, K-H-A-L-I-D-B-I-R-D-S-O-N-G. I know his name better than my own. <laughs> uh, he's also on Facebook and probably a whole host of other social media that I don't do. So um, check him out, okay? Khalid and I have a wonderful discussion over the course of two hours, and it's split up into two parts, so you'll get part one today and part two next week. Uh, so, and I think you're going to find it a fascinating discussion because we, we talk about, you know, living in a different culture and what it's like to be living as an expatriate uh, abroad, right? And uh, it, it's uh, very interesting. I learned some things and you will too, I hope. <laughs> I don't mean to presume, but, you know, anyway. It is... Again, uh, the month of the 70th anniversary of Peanuts. I hope you're celebrating. You've got your Peanuts cakes and Peanuts pies and all of your Peanuts paraphernalia and whatever uh, displayed proudly around your abode. Showing your your Peanuts pride, okay, Uh, here at the 70th year. (laughs) Uh, I think it's a unique and different time for us Peanuts fans this year, both in October and certainly in December, because those venerable and wonderful specials that we know and love from most of our lives are no longer on network TV. They have gone to Apple TV. And uh, wow, that's what a big change, you know. I mean, it really does say something about how uh, media has changed, how the broadcast network business has changed. And, uh, and I mean, if something like, you know, as, as, I mean, much a part of the culture, much a part of television culture, uh, can, can now be moving away from the original three networks and going to streaming services like Apple TV... Well, you know, you've got to know things have changed. And, uh, well, I don't have Apple TV. Uh, I have no real plans to get it. But these are available, from what I understand, to be viewed 
for free on Apple TV, as long as you have the app, um, I think on specific days. And I think for the Halloween special, it's October 30th, 31st, and, and November 1st. And uh, from what I read, I believe the Christmas special is December, what is it, uh, 11th, 10th and 11th? I'll have to double check that. Let me uh, pause a moment. Okay, I'm back. December 11th through 13th. Okay, you can watch the uh, Christmas special So on Apple TV. So if you're looking for it, you don't own the DVD. Uh, my DVD is um, not in close proximity to me right now. So I will try to stream it myself uh, and see what that experience is like. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I think it, it's, you know, as always, I look forward to those specials. They, they certainly commemorate the time of year. And uh, there's nothing quite like both of them to set the mood for the, the, uh, the holiday season, no matter which holiday. And this is a certainly odd Halloween this year, I guess. Uh, most of us will just be staying home. Uh, but, okay, that'll be interesting. See how that goes. Well, okay, so I've, said, I've passed along that information. Uh, and I bet you're ready to hear from Khalid and myself in conversation. So, without further ado, here we go. Hello. This is Khalid okay. Burtzell. Can you hear me okay? You got a great radio voice. Yeah, Did thanks. You know? When I put it on, thanks. <laughs> have, you, have you heard that before? Most certainly, yeah, I have. Oh, okay, yeah, it's it's good, you know. Unlike me, though, you know, I, I think you have a, a face that works on television. My my huh. face is meant for radio. <laughs> oh, come on, and I and I love your voice too. It's just great, and it's you know authentic and real, and it's calming, and so it just kind of brings you right in. It invites you in to the show, and so I love that every time where I'm just kind of like, okay, I just want to cozy in and and listen and learn about cartooning. It's it's really great. I'm the uh, I often think of myself, and this is a big compliment I give myself, but I often think of myself as the Mr. Rogers of comics podcast. <laughs> yes, there we go. There we go. I can you see know? that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't make any attempts to be youthful. You know, it's just uh, uh, cozy is my thing. That's fine with me. And if that's that, as long as I'm, you know, I had a, a student years ago who used to say, you know, she used to sit in the back of my classes. This was a student we all knew pretty well. And uh, she went on to work for the department later on. And um, anyway, she used to say, she'd sit back there and f and she loved to go to my classes because she fell asleep oh. and had the best, the best <laughs> in my class because my voice was so, like, you know, monotone <laughs> or or calming, as you were just saying. Calming, so soothing, it could work. that's right. Yeah, it could work both ways for you. <laughs> yep, yep. The other thing I used to do, now we're getting into personal information. I, my wife, when she's a bit of an insomniac, and oh. so uh, periodically, you know, if she can't get to sleep, all I got to do is pick up a book and read about, you know, two sentences, <laughs> and she's out. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, man. Yeah. It works like a charm every time. <laughs> oh, we got about three pages into harry potter and and that was about it that was it, that was it. next time it's war and peace and yeah, yeah exactly you know exactly so uh so welcome to blockhead khalid birdsong great to have you here thank you it's a pleasure to be here thanks for having me jeff oh hey you know uh it's it's my pleasure it was such a thrill 
Uh, by the time this goes up, uh, you know, people will have had a chance to listen to uh, your podcast with Ray. And that was just such a great moment, uh, yeah. you know, to talk to both of you at the same time, which was unique. I haven't done a, a group chat before on the show. Oh, and that's, right. that's true. Yeah, that was phenomenal. Just being able to talk with Ray and have the have the kind of freedom to discuss all these different issues. But. But yeah, to just kind of be heard and express, you know, our, our feelings and different sides of it. It was it was really great. It, it was really great. And uh, Ray is a wonderful man and um, mm-hmm. just a, a great cartoonist. And in a lot of ways, he looms very large for me anyway, as a cartoonist. I've, I've always loved his stuff. But also, you know, he came up really he was cartooning so young, you know, making right. a a living at it before he was out of his teens and that's right that's right that's, that's so uh amazing isn't it that yep it is amazing on. he just kept it going and uh yep into the stratosphere here he's he's way up up there so yeah, yeah he's yeah. always been uh an inspiration for sure yeah yeah so he so was he one of your formative influences uh you know curtis and ray and and uh his work and, and i'm sure there were others too uh, uh, but certainly, yeah, I think that back when when I uh, was kind of interested in I always made comics as a kid, but, you know, I was always interested in comic books like superhero uh-huh. comics and that sort of thing. And then comic strips. I enjoyed both styles. I really liked uh, the, the humor and the and the uh, cartoony style. But I also liked learning to draw you know, superheroes and something that's a little bit more realistic. And so I, I was always in between those. And especially in high school, I was going back and forth and wanting to uh, look into syndication. And, and I was doing a lot of comic strips. And at that time, at that time, I think uh, Curtis was was pretty, uh, pretty new around then because that was like 90, 91. And so I'm pretty sure I wrote him around 1991 or so. And that's when yeah, he he wrote me back and and with an encouraging letter and the drawing of Curtis and you know it was it was so inspiring then because yeah I didn't really have the the internet to get on and all these you know you it's it was difficult then to find a lot of information about cartooning and you had some cartooning books but but yeah just kind of thinking that a cartoonist uh, on his level would actually write back a high school student interested in learning more about cartooning was just amazing. And so, yeah, so I kept, I kept that, that drawing he did of Curtis for me and I've kept it in every single studio everywhere I've, I've moved and it's up in my studio now um, just as inspiration and a reminder of, of what's possible. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, uh, he is, one of the few who does everything himself, right. uh, which is, I, I find that inspirational too. I mean, because it is, you know, the syndicated comic strip grind, uh, is, yeah. but I mean, it's great to be a syndicated comic strip artist, right? It's, right. it's the dream, but at the same time, it is such a labor intensive grind and that's every day, you know, seven days a week. And you're, and he's doing it all. He doesn't have any assistance whatsoever. I mean, I, I don't think he has uh, an administrative assistant. He doesn't have any. He does it all himself. So, the fact that he took the time out to, you know, write an an aspiring cartoonist, which he does all the time. He does. Uh, we right. had 
a cartoonist on last year, uh, um, Dwayne Abel, who was on the show. And, right. uh-huh. uh, Dwayne, I remember that. Dwayne, yep, Dwayne does uh, a, a great little TV show. And Ray's been a guest on that, I think. And But he wrote to Dwayne when Dwayne was a teenager and <laughs> coming up and took the time to do that. And I think that's just a hallmark of, hopefully, you know, uh, I'm generalizing, but a hallmark of cartoonists in general that they, they if they have the time, they will, they will reach out to aspiring cartoonists. Although you never know. I mean, there are thousands of, of young kids who want to become cartoonists. So... True. Uh, you know, trying to reach out to all of them has got to be a uh, gosh. I can't imagine it's got to be a huge task. And uh, but Ray found the time, and it's great that he did because obviously the inspiration kicked in, and mm-hmm. here we are, right? Yeah, yeah. You never know who you're going to inspire, and so that's true. Yeah, he's he he works hard for that, and yeah. So I'm um, I'm very uh, grateful for him. So you were saying that you were. As you were coming up, you were like interested in both comic strips and you were interested in comic books. So let's let's take that apart a little bit. Um, sure. What comic books and and were you a Marvel head? Were you, you know, a, a DC guy? Were you image? What was what kind of comics were you reading? OK, so here's the thing. Actually, it started more interest in animation. And okay. so, you know, I came up uh, in the 80s with all of the great cartoons that were coming on TV then, you know, with GI Joe and transformers and, and gummy bears and all these different uh, shows that were coming on. And my thing was making comics, but actually I I was more interested in doing graphic novels that you see Uh now, but they just weren't a a thing then. And so I, I really didn't draw a lot of superheroes. I did just regular characters or fun, funny, silly adventures, more like a, I guess a Donald duck or Mickey mouse type adventure comic strip. And I would do a lot of those. And so that was kind of what I wanted to do, but I didn't see much out there. You know, I also read a lot of comics from Europe, like Tintin and Asterix and Obelix, that all of those kind of inspired me. I want to do comics like that, but you didn't see a lot of them in America. And and so, yeah, and I always read the uh, comics in the newspaper and, and loved all of those. And so I was always in between both. And I didn't really want to go into animation as far as becoming an animator, but I really liked the energy and the adventure that you saw in animation and say, can I put this in a book, in a comic, on the page? So that was kind of what I did. And when I was a, a kid, I would I would make um, comics with just regular printer paper and uh, and photocopy them. And you know, my mother would always bring home uh, reams of, of copy paper. She was a teacher, so she would always bring home paper for me, and then I just draw on them and 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 photocopy and staple them. I, I sold them to my friends for twenty five cents, and it was <laughs> it was great. So I was doing that when I was in elementary school, and I kept making comics. And every school I'd go to, I, I'd have a series of comics, and I'd stay up late drawing them. And the my friends couldn't wait to read the next issue, and I'd bring those out. And so it was a lot of fun. But they were always a kind of a combination of something that looked like it would it would fit in. Uh, in an animated show or mm-hmm. a comic book. Uh, and I didn't get into superheroes really until middle school. And then I started trying to learn anatomy and how to how to draw, you know, and I was reading. I didn't really have any side. I, I kind of liked Marvel and DC. And I, mm-hmm. it was just more about the characters. Where, okay, I like Batman and I like Superman, but I also like the X-Men. And so let me do a little bit of this. And, 
And, and yeah, and then high school, it was just like trying to figure out which way to go. I really liked both. It's like, I, you know, I want to, it looks like the only way you can really make money making comics is if you go into superhero comics. So I need to learn how to draw Spider-Man and Batman, but I really like the comic strips. And then, so I just wasn't sure, but yeah, it was always a combination of both of those. That's really interesting. Um, were you reading then in, when you got into middle school and high school, you started getting to superheroes and you were looking for, you were interested in long form stories. Were you reading things like the dark Knight returns and, and Watchmen and graphic novels that were coming out in the late, in the mid to late eighties. And then in the early nineties, trade paperback collections were really popular then. But, uh, then, you know, you started to see a lot of graphic novels happening mid to late nineties. So were you into those and inspired by, by those or were you again not seeing the kind of thing that you were hoping to do yeah i didn't have a lot of exposure uh to a lot of comics i didn't have places to buy comics close or near oh. me and so okay. no i didn't you know it was actually in in middle school when my my you know my dad saw me drawing and everything and he brought home uh, a couple of issues of, of Superman comics and it blew my mind. Like, wait, what? Look at this. And then, you know, like this idea of these, these comics and these floppy comics and, Oh, I just loved it. And so I, you know, I started reading more then and trying to figure out where to, where to find them and buy them. But the graphic novels that you're talking about, I didn't start reading those really until college, uh, started getting really into graphic novels and the more of that long form idea and there really weren't that many. So I just didn't think that was a thing that you could do. Uh, and so, so yeah, I, I, I still felt like, okay, well, even if I make comics, I've got to do the monthly floppy comics and, and go that way. But in my heart, I really wanted to do something um, longer. So what really inspired me in college was, was Bone by Jeff Smith. Uh, sure. And that was the thing where it was kind of like, oh, okay, so he's doing this on his own and he's independent and... And so that was something. And then when he started to put his together, I started to see what's possible. Like, okay, these are his own characters. He did them on his own, but then he puts them together into, uh, you know, a trade paperback, and then goes from there. And oh, okay. And so it started to come a little later for me. Uh, you know, what you can do with with comics. And then after that, you started seeing more graphic novels coming out. And now it's just this is what it is. Yeah, it's it's everywhere. But, you know, Jeff Smith was uh, an inspiration to, I, I think, a lot of people. He continues through Bone to be That's an inspiration true. to a lot of people. That was such a, a kind of an extraordinary achievement in a way. Uh, mm. it, it really is a once in a lifetime kind of achievement to yep. to put something together like like that of that caliber and that stature and that kind of influence. It, uh, it it's impacted. I mean, I was already in my 30s by the time that was coming out and it was an inspiration to me uh, coming out of grad school and and uh, i was a painter but i was hoping to get back into comics and bone was there in the comic shops and it, you know i was just i gravitated to it the same way everybody else did it was just so beautifully done and it just took you to another place and it was so perfectly, you know, realized in terms of writing, in terms of drawing and wow, what it, what a benchmark that was. And, uh, and for generations of cartoonists, I think it's been a huge influence and, uh, 
really quite something. Uh, I can't think of anything else that's quite as has been quite as generation spanning in a way as <laughs> that is that book. But it also one of the other things about it that's unique is that it bridges that gap between the long form and a cartoony style of of drawing that humorous uh, stylized approach to drawing that one associates more commonly with like Carl Barks and, yes. you know, Disney characters and anthropomorphic char- characters that you're kind of talking about. Yep. He bridged that gap and showed it was possible to, to attract a large comic book audience with those kinds of, that kind of graphic approach and that kind of character. Yeah. And that's and that, what, that was so huge for me where it's just like, this is it. When I saw that this is, this is what I'd like to do. And this is, what's possible and and so yeah it was it was huge and when i put when i made my first kind of independent comic uh called aura i i kind of fashioned it after his design and it was black and white interior and then even the the back i don't know if you remember the individual bone comics but on the back it was usually black and then there was one panel black and white panel from inside the book from inside the, that sure. issue and I thought that was so powerful. So I did that. You know, I just wanted to kind of just be like Jeff uh, Smith in that way. And so, so yeah, it was, it was definitely exciting uh, that he did that. And, and yeah, it could inspire so many that were kind of looking for that direction. Yeah. Did you, have you had a chance to, and I, I don't know how deep you go into these things, but have you had a chance to go back and look at some of the other independents, black and white independents that were coming up in the 90s or 80s and 90s, really? Because uh, you know there was a whole boom uh, around, yeah, yeah, because of guys like Jeff Smith, uh, and I think of people. You know, I always reach back to the Hernandez brothers as my mm-hmm. touchstones. Yeah, you know those those guys to me are are just so up there uh, in terms of contemporary cartooning. I just they're just amazing, and uh, yeah. Gilbert and Jaime Hernandez are just. So great, not only in terms of their graphic ability, but also in terms of their writing. But they showed, and along with Daniel Close and yep, uh-huh. Bang, all these people showed what was possible uh, when when I was growing up. And it's interesting, one of the things that I thought of when you were talking is that proximity to a comic shop or proximity in my day to uh, an, a retail outlet that was show, uh, selling comics mm-hmm. was so important if you were going to find your way as an artist into comics, because like you, the, at least in my first 10 years, first 10 years of my life, I was in a little development here in upstate New York where we, there was n- nobody was selling comics around there. And we didn't, our, our paths just didn't as a family, you know, didn't just cross with any store that was selling comics. And when we moved all of a sudden, uh, there was a, a drugstore that was selling comic books and they were available and I just went nuts, you know, it was <laughs> yep. from there on in. It was so proximity and having the proximity because I took the books home and learned how to draw like Neil Adams, you know, not that I ever did, but I was, that was, you know, I'd go home and I'd sit there and read the comic. And then I'd spend days trying to learn to draw like those guys. And proximity seems to me to be so important. If you don't have the access, as you were saying, uh, you're kind of deprived and floating around by yourself trying to figure this all out. Well, you know, I feel like I was fortunate, at least that when I really got into comics in high school, I I could search them out and I found a great comic shop. It wasn't nearby, but I had to go and take the bus, you know, take like two different buses to to get there and took the time. But it was 
it was amazing that I, okay, oh, I found a place. I found a shop that I can go to. And, and that was the time I, even in high school where I remember, you know, they, uh, there was a huge comic book convention. This was in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I think it's Dragon, uh-huh. Dragon Con. It was huge. And so uh-huh. I went there and I, I'll never, you know, my first comic book convention, I never forget meeting Todd McFarlane, like standing in line. And I wanted him to sign my <laughs> Spider-Man number one and able to meet him. And there were other independent comics there and, and, and people were so friendly and, and just seeing the whole world of comics and understanding that, okay, this is what it is. And if you're a comic book artist, you do this, you go to comic book conventions and you meet and get a chance to talk to fans and sign books. And so all of that just really came to life for me in high school. Uh, and I had to search it out though, and had to make sure that I was there, but, but yeah, I, I'm really glad that I did. Well, and it, and, you know, I'm thinking about being young again and, uh, and it's the thought of getting on a bus and going to a comic shop you had to have the money to get on the bus to get to the comic shop. I mean, not only did you have to have the money to, and by the time you were coming up, comics were that much more expensive. Yep. When I was a kid, you know, uh, 20 cents, 15 cents, 25 cents at the max at that point, uh, you know, something you could afford with your lunch money, Mm -hmm. but as they got, you know, which is what I did. I used to save my lunch money and, and instead of buying lunch, I'd buy comic books. But, uh, you, you had to find a way to get to the comic shop, had to take the bus, had to pay for the bus, and then you had to get there and pay for the books. And yeah, so it's a serious investment, not only of time, but of funds too, for a young person. Yeah. But it was just like what you were saying. It was like, it was for me, it was an investment because I was going there to, yeah. I wasn't just going to read the books. I mean, I was going to learn and I'd pour over the pages, read them several times. I'd, I'd copy the poses and, and try to kind of understand how they're working the panels. And, and all of that was school for me. It was just like, okay, uh-huh. there's so much more to this that I need to learn. And, and so, yeah, it was, it was definitely worth it. And yeah, yeah, it was, it was, but it wasn't, it wasn't easy. You're right. Yeah. So you grew up in Atlanta and you grew up in an artistic family. Uh, I mean, I know that your sister, I saw this, I only learned this because your sister liked the post that we put up yesterday about (laughs) the show with Ray. And so, uh, I clicked on her name and I found out that she's a painter and a fairly well-known painter in Atlanta. And so, uh, so there was art around, or at least the artistic inspiration and the encouragement in your family. There's definitely encouragement, I think, uh, for Kalila, and we're not twins, even though we have similar names. But for for her, uh, she was always kind of interested in art, but I think she found it later on in kind of as an adult and got more into that. But she always saw and supported what I did. But of course, I was she does more of the painting and more abstract work, and I'm more kind of drawing and, and illustration and cartooning. And so I think that for us, though, uh, we had a lot of support, but we didn't have a lot of artists in our family, visual artists. And I came up without anyone that that did. I mean, I think my my grandmother did some drawing here and there, and we draw together. And uh, I had a cousin who would draw with me sometimes, but I didn't see people actually as as visual artists putting their work out there. And so I just had to kind of figure it out on my own. And, and that's one reason why I kind of knew knew that this was for me because I just made comics and no one told me to. You know, I just, I always had to make them. It was everything had to come out in a comic. 
And and so that was the thing. And I always wanted to, like I was saying before, go to comic shops and learn. No one told me to go and, and do that. I just had to kind of study and I loved it. And so that that uh, fire, that energy to make comics was was always there. And yeah, I just did it without anyone saying to. Your mom was uh, a teacher, right? Yep. Um, was she a K through 12 teacher? Uh-huh, yes, yeah, usually uh, it was elementary school, uh, first grade, and uh, actually she was my first grade teacher, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, she was That's in my double edged sword. Uh, right, she was she was more well, at that age. It was it was pretty pretty cool, and so uh, she was very and kind of encouraging even then. And uh, but yeah, I grew up in the classroom helping my mother set up for for school uh, in the beginning of the school year, and just kind of being around that. So usually it was elementary school that she taught anywhere from first through fifth grade. And so I grew up kind of around that and then, you know, her having summers off. And, and so, so yeah, I got to see that, but I think that she just, she was accustomed to um, you know, helping and, and, and seeing certain things in kids and, and, and pushing them. And so I think she always just wanted me to draw and, and she wanted to see the stories that I would create. And so, so she was encouraging to you as you were trying to find your way in comics, uh, yeah. as a cartoonist. Yeah. Um, but like you were saying, you, you were pretty much alone in your exploration. Were there and a couple of people here and there, but were there kids that you could share your interest and love of comics with, or was that something that you kept to yourself for yourself? And I think in high school there were, I, I always, of course, my friends, in elementary school, middle school, everybody loved, uh, you know, animation and animated cartoons and movies. So we'd always talk about that. I think that in middle school, I got really heavy into Archie comics and reading Archie comics like crazy. And I had some friends that were interested in those. So we'd talk about what's going on uh, with Archie and Jughead and everybody. And so that was that was fun. And yeah, in high school, I, I had some friends that were into comics. You know, I was never a real super comic book fan of I have to I, I know everything and and all the information mm-hmm. all the characters it was still more about individual artists and stories and and trying to learn but yeah I had some friends that were into it um at that time and I found more friends in college that were into Japanese comics and animation and that's where I kind of got more into anime and manga and that sort of thing in college for sharing it with my friends at that time that's a place where a lot of, I mean, in the nineties and into the the 21st century, so many young people have been impacted by both anime and manga and, uh, which is, you know, opened their eyes to a whole different view of what comics can be because the comics from Japan are so varied in, in subject and in treatment and, there's just so much there's so much to choose from and comics are thought of differently that's true uh, at least from what i've read <laughs> you know i've never been to japan so i don't really know uh but you have and yep. so we'll we'll talk about that in a moment um jeff smith uh todd mcfarland you mentioned were there other artists that were inspiring to you past or present of course i mean you know everyone has to say it but uh calvin hobbs uh was huge for me because i remember i mean i was there for for his whole run in the newspaper and just being amazed at how just groundbreaking it was and and different it was and i remember when he ended the 
the strip and I was just so hurt. I was like, what? I think it was only 10 years or so, right? And it was just like, oh no, that's it. Mm -hmm. And so he was huge. And, and even Garfield, people can say what they want about Garfield and Jim Davis, but you know, you can see his influence in my art with the large eyes. And I uh -huh. loved, I loved Garfield, especially even in middle school and just trying to draw. And I, I can still draw Garfield to this day without looking at a photo because I drew him so many <laughs> times over and over and over. And, and so his style and that, uh, you know, kind of the simplicity, but, uh, yeah, just the appeal of his, of his characters and comics I loved. And, of course, Peanuts as well. It's just kind of seeing, you know, like I always felt like uh, Peanuts was just, yeah, it was always consistent. I felt like it was always there and would always be there. And the fact that, you know, I think Peanuts was the one that showed me that, hey, you know, you can you can make a huge business out of cartooning. I mean, you can turn it into animation and toys and clothes. And so that really kind of opened up kind of my ideas, um, you know, the ideas of what you can do with cartooning. And so that was huge. And then Curtis was as well, just kind of seeing uh, a black kid on the comics page and being able to check check in with him on a regular basis was was just amazing at that time. But, but yeah, those were the guys that really kind of influenced me uh, in my youth. You know, Jim Davis, yeah, you're right. You know, we tend to look back at Garfield and and as cartoonists, we can critique it because of its repetitiveness or because of its slickness or whatever. And but the reality is it appealed to so many people and it was such so I mean, before Calvin and Hobbes and, and very different from Calvin and Hobbes in a way, because Garfield was merchandised in a way yes. that Calvin and was and and so you had it everywhere and i remember the early late 70s early 80s boy Gar garfield was just like all over the place and uh, uh you know it was the successor in terms of popularity the mm -hmm. biggest successor i think to peanuts in that in that sense okay. although you know it never appealed uh, it, i was older by then it never really appealed to me in the same way uh but you have to hand it to him he crafted very clearly defined characters which i think is one of the hardest thing to do yes, and appealing characters one of the hardest things to do in a comic strip is yep. is create characters that are so memorable and and resonate with the public so strongly that they want to own everything that's in their image right yeah and it's just you know and they say you know it's you can you can you can get upset with it and all that, but you can't knock his hustle. I mean, he he made it happen. He really he really did. He he planned it out. He did it. And I and as a kid, I can understand as an adult now where I can some things I can roll my eyes at with with Garfield. But in general, when I was a kid, I had a stuffed Garfield. Uh, you know, I, I was and I loved it. I thought it was so great. And so so yeah, if you have an appealing character and you have you have kind of distilled it down to this place where. Uh, where it can work for, for everyone and it's got that mass appeal, I think that's pretty impressive. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial-free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers 
its own distinct reward. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. You know, I I tip my hat to anybody who's successful in this business because well, I know how hard it is to right. get by. And to do it for so many years is just extraordinary. It's once, you know, just think about it. You're in the public eye and being in the public eye, you're subjected to both praise and criticism. And you know how anybody critiquing your work, you hear one bad comment and it's just all of the good comments go flying away. The one bad one just sits there on your head all day and i can't imagine being you know on that level and and then continuing it consistently for 25 30 40 years and doing it at such a level it's maintaining that it's it's just extraordinary so it's we take it for granted but folks like jim davis or or ray billingsley or charles schultz uh they're rare and yeah, they really you know, are. there's a, you know, they really are rare. And the fact that they continue and do it that do it for so long and at such a level is really uh, you've got to tip your hat to them because it's yeah. hard to make it in the arts, no matter what you're doing. And I like what you were saying about just the idea of maintaining it. And that is what I'm finding to be the challenge of having to keep that going. I mean, you've got to every week produce and with these same characters, keep them interesting, have new stories uh, to do with them. And, and I'm not even every day. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to post, you know, one to three times a week. And it's still, it's like, you've got to keep going, no matter what is going on in your life, what's happening in the world, you, those comics need to go up there. And, and if you need to take a vacation, you need to do enough to, to, uh, you know, buffer so that you can cover it. And, and that's a lot of work to just kind of keep up that consistency. And so, that's something that I've been really focused on. Like, how do you do that? How do you stay consistent and and continue uh, with your work on a regular basis? Well, and it is hard, uh, and and it is tricky. And I mean, there are a couple of things that happen in that process, though, right? Uh, I mean, on the one hand, do you feel as though there's a kind of addictive quality to it? Oh yeah, that, for sure. You yeah, know, the sure. idea that you put something out every couple of days. And both the, the idea of, I mean, I found it while I was working on my stuff and I still find it very addictive to put the comic strip out there. And then you're, you're like, okay, I got to do the next one and do that. You're on a, a treadmill in a way, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's a treadmill of your own creation. Um, yep. but it's also, it's like, it, you, it's like coffee in the morning. Oh, I got to have it. You know, yeah. I can't drink coffee, but I got to have tea in the morning, you know? And so it's like, it's, oh my God, it's a habit that's hard to break once you get into it. At the same time, the conundrum is, is that it's difficult to maintain it. Like it is difficult to maintain any kind of uh, regime exercise or otherwise. Yeah, you're right. And I feel like it's, uh, it is, I definitely feel that kind of hit that you get when, oh, it's, I got to put this up and then it's out and people are commenting on it and this is great. And then I got to keep it moving. And, and so that is, that is huge. I find, though, that it's also fun to to figure out ways to keep it fresh and alive. And so that for me, a lot of times that means reading or watching many different types of of, of things from different genres or 
you know, opinions from different people and, and listening to things that maybe I normally wouldn't to stretch my imagination, but also to just give me a different side to things so that I can see, okay, I might not agree with this person right here, or this sounds insane, but someone's believing this, someone feels this, why? Why are they like that? And then I can put that into my characters and and say, okay, because this character feels this way, doesn't mean I have to agree with it, but this is who this character is. And so let me go that way. And so I I find the more uh, diverse my my reading and and watching uh, tastes are, the better and easier it is to kind of keep coming up with things for my characters to think and do. Do you, offhand, do you recall any specific moment in the strip where you had a character expressing a thought with, that was perhaps antithetical to your own point of view or your own feelings on some issue here and there? Yeah, I, not at the moment. One thing I can think of uh, is the character Principal Glossy Gleam in Fried Chicken uh-huh. and Sushi. He is the principal of the uh, International School of Osaka, and he is, a, you know, a narcissist. He he is only concerned about himself, and 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 it shows. And it's it's fun to write him because he's so unlike the way that I would want to be. He's actually the opposite of, of any good Japanese person, you know, because Japanese people are, are not supposed to be thinking about just themselves. They should be thinking about each other and very respectful of each other. And he breaks all of those rules. And it's only about only about him. And sometimes I cannot stand him. And, and, I, and, I, and I understand why the characters get upset with him. But because of that, he's fun to work with and He's a pretty defined character where you you see him and you know what you're going to get. You know you're going to get him being, uh, you know, somehow thinking about himself in some way. And and so that's so that's fun. So with that, I I, I want to kind of do more of that with characters as they come about. But he's the one that really stands out. Do you ever get any kind of um, response about him? Uh, either from the Asian community or from school teachers or people who, or principals <laughs> who, who might identify with, you know, who he represents? Yeah, I mean, you know, not really. I think that I, I, I hear from, mainly I hear from people that actually really like him a lot because he's so different. <laughs> I, think they, I think they see what I'm doing, that, you know, I'm kind of representing authority or someone in charge, uh, in kind of a larger scale there. But I think also people tend to think that he would, if he were in a show, it would be uh, mm-hmm. the actor uh, George Takei from uh, um, from Star, Star Trek. Trek. Yeah, uh-huh. and they just, they see, they can hear his voice as Principal Glossy Gleam, you know, there's this kind of voice of, hello, oh, well, yes, this is a wonderful day and it's all about me <laughs> and that sort of thing. And they, and so those are the comments that I get. Like, I just, I just see him playing, playing this character and I hear his voice in my head and I, and so that brought him to life even more for me. Uh, but, but yeah, I think that one thing that's, that's interesting is that the, the, the character has been around for so long uh, and he is kind of based off of a, a principle that, I had in Japan, and he was not a narcissist, but he was um, just very interested in in me as a foreigner at the school and the only kind of foreign teacher at the school and would follow me around or sneak up on me and read my emails and, what are you doing? Oh, this is very interesting. And, you know, like he would just, and he wanted to have tea with me a lot and speak, and it was great, 
but it was also, you know, I think even the other teachers were like, why is he so interested? And so I guess he just uh, found it interesting. So that's where he started. And then I kind of added on other characteristics over time and wanted to, to show someone who's very different than, uh, you know, an actual Japanese principal uh, of a school. So, so yeah, he's kind of evolved over time. You know, I, I'm not going to be able to get George Takei's voice out of my head <laughs> saying, it's another day all about me. Yeah, all about <laughs> me. <laughs> That's it. That's great. What a great line. Another day all about me. I, I think those words must echo in Trump's head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there you go. Over there you and go. over again. Another day all about me. <laughs> well, again, so that's, it's really great. I get to get my, you know, any kind of kind of uh, Trump frustrations out uh, through through glossy gleam and uh, yeah, and then this idea of him having a shine around him that's in a lot of Japanese manga where they have a bishi gleam where you know if someone's really handsome or beautiful they have these stars and the shine that goes around them when you see them because they're so gorgeous and and he has one too he's got his his own gleam that and no one knows where he gets it from and there's a different story every year about how he gets his gleam and so I've had a lot of fun uh, with his character and I kind of like that I like uh, I like Carl being the straight man in some ways and then having these characters that are kind of eccentric or different uh, surrounding him so uh, and and you know and that's a I find a, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of comics or a lot of shows are built around a, a character who's relatively straight-laced, and then everybody around him is kind of wacky, and uh, and and that works in a lot of good situations. When you when you first devised Carl, did you imagine that that was going to be his role? No, no, I didn't. Uh, but I thought that perhaps. Uh, you know, since I am kind of that way and Carl was loosely based on, on me, I mean, I tend to be pretty straight-laced. And then for some reason, I attract some very interesting people that, <laughs> that I'm just like, what is this? And so I, and I think it's the cartoonist in me, right? You know, as, as cartoonists, we, we see the humor in the world. And so I find those certain things uh, in people. But yes, yeah, I'm always surrounded by uh, funny, interesting people. And so I think that also just kind of came about. But yeah, that idea of I, I I really want to show um, you know the extremes of certain characters, but but yeah, I I think you're right. It's because you see that a lot in in comics and and shows in general that it just kind of naturally moved in that direction. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about your experience in Japan and how it led to fried chicken and sushi. Uh, how was it that you first came to Japan? Well, let's see. Um, so you got to understand kind of around the, the time. Uh, so I had a, a few things that happened that led me to want to go to Japan. I, mean, I always wanted to go. And for a time, I was talking with my friend uh, Jason, who's Jay in the comic strip. And we uh-huh. just wanted to take a, a trip to Japan just to go there and, and, and really experience it. And, you know, just as comic book and manga anime geeks we wanted to go and and experience it but but you know i was teaching and uh this was in florida in orlando florida i was i was teaching elementary school art at that time and you know i uh i think i mentioned this on the other podcast but one of my my friends was shot and killed by the police and it just you know and it was it wasn't him they thought he was someone else and, you know, it was it was just horrific for for me and all of my friends. I mean, it was really hard to deal with it. 
And I think on, on, on the last show, I said 15 years ago. It was actually 20 years ago. Time goes by wow. so fast. But, but 20 years ago, and also around that time, just kind of being in Florida, we had the election of George W. Bush and that whole issue with Al Gore and, 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 and George Bush and, and, you know, like counting mm -hmm. everything. And then, you know, I was in Florida where they were turning African-Americans away. And it was all of this. It was really hard at that time. And I, I had to go and, and vote. And it was, you know, it was fine, but it was a scary time and hanging chads and all these things everyone was talking about at that time. And then uh, it was 9-11. And, you know, like I was I was teaching I was teaching in in a class uh, teaching art when that was happening uh, during 9-11 and we couldn't say anything to the kids. And, you know, uh, in between classes, I had to watch the news just in shock of what was going on. And and all of us have our stories and went through it. And so just after all of that, you know, I just needed a break from America. I needed a break from this experience and from being a black man in America. And I wanted a different experience. And I found out about the JET program, which is a program where you can teach English in Japan. It's sponsored by the, the government. Uh, and yeah, you can go there and they, they put you in a certain area and you can teach junior high school and you work with a, with a, a Japanese teacher who teaches English and you're kind of like an assistant teacher with them and you help with pronunciation of words and, and, and all of that. And I, I said, you know, let me give that a try and see if I can maybe just go to Japan, maybe not just take a trip, but actually live there. And yeah, so I applied and it was almost a year long process of applications. Uh, and also uh, Jay also applied as well. And, you know, at the same time, and we were talking about all the excitement it's gonna be, you know, how exciting it's gonna be to be there. And, you know, I, I, I got in and Jay did not. And it oh. was really, it was really hard. I mean, maybe it was my teaching experience at the time. He wasn't a teacher at the time. Maybe it was that. I don't know. We still don't know what it is, but it was it was frustrating. And I kind of just kind of gave up on it and said, well, I guess I'm not going to go then, uh, you know. And I talked to, to Jay about it, and he was, he was really nice about it and was just kind of like, well, you know, if you have an opportunity to go, you should go. And so, you know, and I and so I was like, OK, all right, you know, I'll. I'll do it, and and yeah, and I went, and of course communicated with him. And the original fried chicken and sushi comic strip was a lot of uh, of Carl and Jay, and Carl on the phone with uh, with Jay talking about things in Japan that he uh, that he's experiencing. And you know, it was it was hard because Jay is more into like martial arts, and and he's the one that really got me into like uh, you know Japanese comics and animation and all of that, and so. So yeah, that, I tried to put that in the original comic strip. But yeah, that's what led me there. I, I moved to Osaka, uh, but a little town outside of Osaka called Shimamoto. And it was, you know, I think about 30 minutes by train further north in between Osaka and Kyoto. So it was just a small town by the mountains. I was the only foreigner. No, I had another uh, English teacher who was living there at the time too, and she could help me out. Uh, with some things but yeah as far as the school goes i was the only foreigner in the school i didn't really speak japanese before going so i had to learn while i was there and so so yeah it was it was a huge hard fun amazing experience i was gonna say it sounds unbelievable it, it sounds like the experience of a lifetime how long were you there for 
So I was there for two years, you know, it's a year contract and then you can re-up for a second year. And I think if you want to stay past that, you have to have a certain level of Japanese proficiency. And then uh, I think it, your job might change a little bit. But even if you want to stay in Japan, there are other schools, I mean, other companies you could work for to teach English. And there are many ways that people just kind of stay there. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I found that if I wanted to stay in Japan, there weren't, weren't that many choices for me. Uh, you know, most foreigners are English teachers or teachers in general. And yeah. I didn't know if I wanted, wanted to continue teaching English. Um, getting any other kind of job or a corporate job, you really have to be almost fluent in Japanese to, to get into those. And I just wasn't. And so, yeah. And so it was, it was something where the two years was, was good, but I met my wife there and we got married in Japan right before moving to America. And so now we uh, go back every year, at least once a year, to visit family. And so I still get to stay connected to Japan, which really helps the comic strip. And because every time I go, there's so many experiences and I'm walking around writing things down and like, oh, this would make a great comic right here. And this would, you know, like I can now, it's almost like therapy for me, anything that, yeah, the good stuff, but even the, the things that are challenging, I can I can work through, <laughs> through uh, fried chicken and sushi. And so... So yeah, I still I'm still connected to Japan and and love the connection that I have. You know, in my um, very few forays outside of the United States, uh, I haven't had a lot of opportunity to travel in my life. So, uh, but when I have left, uh, one of the most refreshing things that uh, to feel when you're landing in another country and you get off the plane and you go outside of the airport and get in a car. And, drive off some places to find out that there that there are other places in the world wherein whatever's going on in the United States is not central right. <laughs> to the, the all of the turmoil that we seem to go through constantly here when you go to you know Canada or you go to Japan or you go to Italy or or wherever uh, you you get off the plane and you you get on the ground and boom it's like the United States is not primary it, to, to that existence. It's, you know, it's not central to their lives. Their lives are where they are, and it's a whole different way of looking at the world. It just shocks you out of that parochial view. We like to think of ourselves here in the United States as being the most sophisticated, the most, yeah. you know, uh, well-educated, the most realistic about the world. That's We're right. Like, you know, supposedly the world leaders in this that and the other thing and then you go someplace else and you realize that is just a parochial point of view it's a very you know limited scope uh, the, the reality is so much more complex and it's so refreshing really it is refreshing and that's a part of you know what even when before i went over there that the jet program wanted to prepare me for and they they do a lot of talking about that of just you know and just your perspective will change uh and to be prepared for that and you will look at everything differently, like you were saying. But this idea that America is kind of in the spotlight in the world. I mean, we are, everyone's paying attention to us. And you are in that spotlight when you're here. And there's so yeah. much that you believe and that you will accept because you are just in the middle of it. And we are, you know, programmed by everything that we read and watch. But then when you leave that and you're somewhere else, and of course, yes, you're getting to see how how they run things and how uh, the society is in whatever that country is, but then you look back in at America and you're like, wow, 
look at all of this. And people are brainwashed by so many things. And why do we think this is okay? And so you even look at your own country and, and you're embarrassed a bit or you're uncomfortable with certain things because you're like, wow, people just, they're not, they're not seeing it. So it does wake you up to certain things, especially when you're living abroad and you're just kind of, you have to kind of take on some of the rules of society and you have to become a slightly different person, uh, at least on the outside. I mean, you're always who you are, but you do change. And, and yeah, it's just America looks very different when you're there. I don't know why I'm thinking of, there is a, <laughs> this is off topic again. This is how my mind works. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of a, ba- a band called the Waterboys from the 80s and a guy oh. by the name of Mike Scott, who was a really terrific songwriter and great lyricist. And he wrote this extraordinary song about being a Russian soldier during World War II and how when they went back to the Soviet Union, Stalin had them all shipped you know, these were soldiers who fought against the Nazis in World War II and defended Stalingrad and all this. You know, they were at the front. And anyway, Stalin took most of them and had had them shipped off to Siberia because they'd been in too much contact with the West and that their mindset will have changed too much. And so he had them all shipped to Siberia and many of them just shot, you know, because mm-hmm because they had had this experience wherein perhaps their minds had been open to some other reality other than the reality Stalin wanted them mm. to experience. It's a powerful, powerful song and a wow. frightening image. And the reality is obviously horrifying. And, yeah. but, but the, it, it calls to mind this idea that yes, you know, contact with other people, contact with other cultures is going to open your mind and make you see things differently. And when you come back home, you're not going to see things quite the same way. You're not in that. I mean, it's easy to slip back into that kind of hypnosis, uh, that right. state of hypnosis that, that for example, you know, the media, or whichever media outlet you listen to, you know, is going to have upon you. But, uh, and it's easy to get caught up into the internecine battles and all kinds of stuff when you get back into, you know, whatever country you're from and, and fall back into it. But at the same time, mm, you've been someplace else, you know, there's a different way of looking at things. Yeah. And, and there's no, there's no one right way, Jeff. And that's what really got me. I was just like, yeah, yeah, there are, People are okay, you know. Like they, people are like, "Oh, how are you handling being in a country that's not a, you know, Christian?" And they, and they don't think about these kinds of things. Well, everybody's okay. Everybody's yeah. fine, you know. Like it's a different thing. And even from the opposite way, uh, you know, I remember, you know, just you're over there to teach English, but of course it's also, uh, you know, that kind of cultural exchange type uh, situation too, where the students in the classroom get a chance to have someone from another country there to talk about what it's like in their country. And and, and one thing that shocked me, I remember we talked about, uh, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King. And, you know, it was, and for them, you know, they, they read about the change that he made and all that. And a lot of Japanese students felt like, well, Martin Luther King changed everything. So now there's no more racism in America and everything's equal. And, you know, and it was shocking to be like, wow, I guess, I guess they, they would think that. And maybe you're, they may see a, a show from America or something, and maybe they see it may look like things are equal. And so you have to kind of talk about how, no, it's, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that and, and not exactly the same. And so, so yeah, you get to kind of see both sides of that. Uh, yeah. When you're there. 
I, and I don't know that much about Japanese culture uh, and history. I mean, I know, you know, really very surface issues. And, and uh, I'm thinking about the, you know, the issues that we have in the United States in terms of race and in terms of, of discrimination, in terms of uh, the history we have in this country. Uh, Japan doesn't have that kind of history. Uh, and so it would almost seem like, I mean, I'm guessing, but it would seem like it would be very natural in a way to look at what happened in the United States and see it in terms of certain historical benchmarks. Slavery ends, and then there is Rosa Parks, and there's Martin Luther King, and civil rights, and then, okay, we've had that discussion, everything is cleared up now, and yet they're not aware of, of the ongoing issues, you know, of, uh, over the course and the complexities, why would they be, you know, because, well, I mean, if you think not... about it, actually, they, they do, they did in the, in the past. I mean, it was more of, if you're talking about class or caste and that sort mm-hmm. of thing, yeah. you know, that's more of where they, they come from of, Oh, well, you're not, you're not on the right, uh, you're not on the right level with this person or that uh-huh. person. And you can't, you know, like there's the samurai class and you're not this or that. And, and so, yeah, they definitely come from that. So it's different. And and even down to even skin color sometimes, if you're a little bit darker uh, skin, then maybe you're thought of as different. Or if you're from this certain neighborhood where there are certain people that work in this, you know, in this certain industry. So there's there's plenty of that that happened. It's, it's not as much now, fortunately, but you can come from, you have a lot of that in Japan as far as Japanese people are are concerned and even different areas of Japan because you had different dialects, uh, kind of offshoots of, of the standard Japanese and and looking at, uh, you know, oh, you're from this area and, and maybe not liking and there's a big rivalry b- between Osaka and, and Tokyo and what and, and you know, uh, how they speak and all of that. So there's it's there. But, yeah, it's not it's not the same uh, as what we have here. But but, yeah, it's it's definitely present. It's really, it's you know, and it goes to as I said before, my own ignorance about Japan and Japanese culture and history. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's really as complex as any place else. And obviously, you know, um, I mean, again, my understanding of the issues are very surface, but uh, um, the treatment of women, um, right, in Japanese culture, right, yep. is, is exactly. you know, uh, so there are a lot of those things. But so. You know, your experience, you've gone from being an African-American man in the United States and dealing with the tension and the the pressure, really, that that entails. And then now you've gone to Japan. Did you find yourself, I mean, how did that feel in terms of that kind of pressure? Were you alleviated? Was it nice to be able, but at the same time, you're also in Japan and again, you know, you're not only an American, but you're an African-American. And so, again, that's kind of a, a unique situation. Uh, how did that feel for you? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that, because that was the thing of, you know, it was a relief because I wasn't just, you know, I wasn't just looked at as a black man and people fearing that or being uncomfortable with that, like in America, it was more of being a foreigner, mm-hmm. not not being Japanese, being someone who's tall and looks different than everyone else. That's more of what it was. It was more mm-hmm. of a, a fascination, a fascination with with kind of my differences, I guess, with mm-hmm. my differences and just kind of having to deal with that. And And sometimes there's some prejudice that goes along with that because, you know, it, it's one thing 
and I think anyone who lives in Japan knows this, like if it's one thing when you visit Japan for a couple of weeks and oh man, J Japanese people are amazing at, at treating foreigners well when you're here, uh, as, when you're there as a tour tourist and oh man, it's, it's amazing. It's different when you live there because that's something that's hard to understand for them. It's like, why do you want to live in Japan? You're not Japanese. Why would you be? You know, it's not like America where you have people from all over the world coming to live. It's more of a thing of what do we do with you? You're still here. You're still, <laughs> what do you we know, do? and you, you don't look Japanese. And, and so that's what you kind of deal with is this idea that you're there. You can learn the language. You can become, you can learn all of the culture and all the customs and still walk down the street and someone thinks that you're, you, you just, you're, you're here as a tourist and you'll always look like someone who's non-Japanese and they'll never think that you are. And so that's, that's hard. But for me, it was such a relief to be able to walk down the streets. I wasn't watching my back safe. You know, I, I felt comfortable and, and yeah, I was different, but I felt more at ease to be myself and to, you know, I didn't have to fear when I w went into a, a, a store or even the cops, I didn't have to worry about them trying to, to uh, do something to me. It was, it was such a relief. So that, you know, what I was looking for was that different experience and, and I got it and I found it. And every time I'm there, I love the kind of relief that comes from being there and just being like, okay, all, all I have to do is be a foreigner here. I just have to be different in that way. But yeah, I don't have to worry about being, the, the being black is the is the problem, and so yeah, that that was definitely a difference that that I uh, was uh, enjoying for sure. So you met your wife there, yeah, uh, and in Japan, and how did that? Uh, how did you meet her, and and how did that relationship develop? And then I guess the follow up question to that is, what kind of did you develop many friendships with Japanese people? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, I did develop friendships with Japanese people in, that I worked with, uh, and a couple that were very good, and I still communicate with today, a couple of teachers that I've kept up with. But, you know, for my wife, I actually met her pretty early on, after about a month or so, and I never thought that I could actually uh, meet my wife in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I didn't really date outside my race. I really didn't, you know, like I just, I, I thought maybe I'd meet a nice person and, and hopefully we'd have a, a fun relationship, but I didn't really know and, and have a good time and learn from each other. But I couldn't really uh, imagine like, how could I ever, you know, marry someone if they, if we don't speak the same language and we lived in, in different cultures and all of that. But, but yeah, I met her like a month in and she worked at a school with uh, a friend of mine who, was from you know an American from America, but uh, and we met uh, when we came over to uh, to Japan, and so yeah, we just kind of got together, and she invited us out, and a, a couple of and then my my wife's uh, good friend at the same time, and I was like, okay, we'll go out, and yeah, I was I was really taken with her. I was like, oh wow, and and so what we did though, you know, in Japan, a lot of times people are shy, and you know, you don't usually just walk up to someone and ask for their number, that sort of thing. They have dating parties where, oh. you know, people organize, you know, you at a big restaurant and then you you bring a friend and then this guy brings a friend and everybody just kind of hangs out at a table getting to know each other. And then if you like each other, then you can exchange information and maybe something will go. So it's an easier way to meet people. 
And this wasn't exactly that, but it was more of, okay, we're hanging out together and I liked her. And then I kind of asked my friend, can we get together again and do something else? And then we all got together again and, you know, and did that a few times before I felt comfortable enough just kind of asking her out on an individual date. And, you know, uh, and then it worked out and we, we kept, uh, you know, uh, seeing each other and everything. And so that's kind of how, you know, it was a little mix of Japanese and American style in there uh, to come together. And, and yeah, yeah, that was, the rest is history. That's so great. Uh, it really is terrific. It's a wonderful story. Uh, and so I'm assuming she spoke fluent English. Is uh, No, she didn't. That was the thing. She did Okay, no, so the she communication was, uh, was... It was definitely something, you know, like she uh, uh, was an English teacher at the school that my friend was was in, and so she did speak English. But you know, uh, it's and it was good enough that we could communicate and everything. But but still, it's I mean, looking at what she can do now is <laughs> just amazing. Uh, but but yeah, but she she didn't. But we still could communicate well, and I wanted to learn Japanese, so we yeah. really tried to do a, a trade of sometimes Japanese, <laughs> sometimes English, and that really helped my Japanese grow. Uh, so that was good, but but yeah, it was it was a lot, and we just I don't know it was it was something about her, not even just being Japanese, or something about her that 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 makes this work, and something about what we have together, and so yeah, that was kind of the biggest surprise of all. And sometimes we even joke that you know like this shouldn't work, this should, how does this work? How does this work for us? <laughs> I don't understand because of course we both dated before. She didn't date any one that was you know non-Japanese before or anything like that. And so it was just kind of like this thing of how come just with us, this seems to work. And, and so, and we still say that, I'm just like, I don't know what it is, but you know, we're grateful for it. And, and so, yeah, that's kind of the thing that's always been a surprise, uh, with our relationship. Well, and it, you know, I mean, uh, again, I think of a wonderful phrase that, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell said many years ago is true love bears all things and i think true love also overcomes all divisions you know and yeah. so the two of you wanted and connected deeply enough that you know you shared the desire to overcome any kind of cultural barriers or bar barriers of language and uh, and make something entirely new which is you know incredible and uh, it's wonderful and yeah. so how long have you been together now oh gosh it's been uh Wow, is it 17 years now wow. or so? We've been married for about 15, so yes. Uh -huh. Amazing. Wow. All righty, so that'll do it for this time. I hope that whets your whistle for next week's episode where we pick up discussion just where we left off, talk more about Khalid's experiences in Japan and his comic strips, fried chicken and sushi, and the honey buns, both of which can be found in various places. <laughs> uh, let's see, fried chicken and sushi, you can find at friedchickenandsushi.com or even better, at gocomics.com, where you can subscribe to it with a whole bunch of other great comics. So if you haven't done that, head on over to gocomics.com. First thing, get an account, sign up for fried chicken and sushi first thing, okay? And then uh, check out the rest of the comics they have there because there's lots available to you on gocomics.com. And you can also follow Khalid on Instagram at Khalid Birdsong, that's K-H- a-L-I-D-B-I-R-D-S-O-N-G. Yes, he does it twice in the same show. 
Okay, you can follow Kali there and uh, keep up with fried chicken and sushi there and the honey buns. Both of uh, his, his comic strips are available there and posting there, and I'm sure he will appreciate it. So be sure to do that, okay? And uh, what else? Um, oh, hey, there's me. <laughs> you can always follow me, too, at Grogan Jeff, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. I am on a roll, folks. I'm spelling like crazy. I should be in a spelling bee. Uh, I'm doing so well. And uh, so follow me there um, every now and again. I'm posting a lot more uh, on Spiking the Lens, though, at Spiking the Lens, where you can follow my comic strip. Been doing Jacktober, which is the celebration of Jack Kirby uh, all month long. Uh, and that's been a lot of fun, uh, if a lot of pressure. <laughs> Any one of these Inktober, October things is pressure, right? And uh, for those of us involved in them, but they're fun, too. It's a nice way to end the afternoon, sit down and do a Jack Kirby drawing. So check that out uh, as well on Spiking the Lens, at Spiking the Lens. It's one word on Instagram. And, of course, there's jeffgrogan.com, G-E-O-F-G... G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Visit me there and check out my work. And uh, and you can see lots of little things that I've done over the years. What else? Where else am I? <laughs> I'm here at home uh, in my closet. And yet I seem to be everywhere um, at the same time. So uh, all of that. Do all of that. Next time we're going to follow up and, and have the second part of this wonderful interview with Khalid Birdsong. And then following that... We have the author of the new Peanuts book, The Peanuts Book, it's called. Wow, it's The Peanuts Book. Not just any Peanuts book, it's The Peanuts Book by Simon B. Croft. And it is an all-Schultz show, <laughs> if you will, uh, celebrating the 70th anniversary of Charles Schultz, the publication of this wonderful new visual biography of the comic strip, The Peanuts Book. And it's a terrific book for old fans of the book as well as new fans and introducing the strip to, to uh, new those new to Peanuts, if there is yet anyone out there. It's a wonderful book. So uh, that is upcoming, post-election day, I think. So, And I don't know. Let's see. There's a couple weeks left. Will we have the second part of this interview before election day? I'm not sure. I can never tell you know, what my schedule's like. I always think I'm going to get it out there as soon as possible, but then things happen. Uh, well, we'll try, okay? But Hey, voting has started already, early voting. So, you know, get out there, do your thing, vote whatever way is best for you. It's great if you can do it in person, because we all know there's a lot of disinformation going on right now. And uh, but get out there and vote. This is this is this is it, man. We got to do it and we got to make that change. So do it. OK, vote and um <laughs> vote as many times no <laughs> just you know do the right thing <laughs> okay so uh anyway uh and that's it for me okay um i'm working on stuff so you can follow me on instagram at those places that i mentioned and i will see you next time so in the meantime be well be safe be happy enjoy the festive peanut celebrations that are proliferating in your neighborhood and elsewhere uh celebrate halloween you know whatever way you see fit to uh this year this odd covid year and be, just just you know uh, enjoy life as much as you can and and i will see you next time thanks for listening mm-hmm.